we're very grateful for the time we had, and, and we did need to go to check up on the Fiskins, so that was yeah. a pastoral visit to Disneyland. Um, it is Memorial Day, Memorial Weekend, and so we're, we're recognizing the uh, high cost that has been paid by many families throughout our nation for uh, those who have had loved ones who have lost their lives in the service of our country, military service. We do long for the day when we don't need military forces anymore, but that's forthcoming and it's not yet. So uh, we'll pray, Father, for that time. Let's pray together and pray for our time together. Father, we are grateful for people who are faithful servants of yours in all kinds of ways. And in this fallen world in which we live, where evil advances apart from resistance, we need to have law forces. We need to have military forces. And again, we acknowledge that that's not the way it's supposed to be, but it's where we are now and in the course of history. And the cost is high for families who have lost loved ones to, to death in the service of our country. We pray, Father, for your confirming comfort to them, whether it's been 50 years or 5 years or 15 years that that loss has taken place. It's a high cost and it's hard. But we're grateful, Father, for the loyalty of those who serve our country and uh, do the necessary work of, of resisting evil and and upholding um, the safety of our nation. Father, toward that end, the end when there will be no more wars, we, we pray for the advancement of the gospel and the finishing of the work that Christ has called us to, bringing the gospel to every people group among all nations. We get a little piece of that action here in, in Camus at Harvest Community Church and other churches that teach your word and disciple your people. So help us this morning to take in your word and grow by it and, and be changed by it and be uh, have hope by it, to be empowered by it, to live holy for Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. What you think about is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. What you think about is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. What do you think about that? Yeah. What's, what's on your mind this morning? That's one big idea that we'll see in these first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8. And uh, coming into the 8th chapter of Romans... Um, some might argue that Romans is the greatest book in the Bible. Some might argue it's not. You're free to be wrong about that. I had one person this morning who already said this is his favorite book, so it works for him. But I think we could really make a case for Romans 8 being the greatest chapter in the Bible. It's a high watermark for sure. Because what Romans 8 does is it, it gives the full assurance that Christ's saving work for us cannot fail. It gives reason for hope and suffering. It presents God's plan for the redemption of creation. It declares nothing can separate us from the love of God. It starts out with no condemnation and ends with no separation. So to that end, let's read together the first 11 verses of Romans chapter 8, starting with no condemnation in verse 1. And I ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. 
Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And may God bless and grant us understanding according to his word. You may be seated. So looking at verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. Therefore takes us back to chapter 7. And just checking, so you have met the past couple of weeks, right, while I was away? Okay, good. So last week, Matt brought chapter 7, the last big chunk of chapter 7 to you. Paul describes how under the law, in chapter 7, we are enslaved under the power of sin and are unable to carry out God's law. The problem, he says, is not in the law. There's no defect in that. It's in us. It's sin in us that causes us to be unable to keep God's law. The law is good and holy, but in our flesh, which is not just our physical bodies, but it's our um, fallenness. It's everything in us that resists and rebels against God's law that we inherited from Adam. So if you want to blame it on your parents, you just keep pointing back all the way back to Adam. And yes, that, that's our problem. It's the fall. The law can't free us from our bondage to sin. It can only condemn us and make it worse, Paul says in, in chapter 7. Paul has made this really clear in um, chapter 7 as well as some other texts from, from chapters 5 and 6 as well. He ends chapter 7 in verse 24 by complaining, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then in, in verse 25 of chapter 7, he thanks God that Jesus will deliver him, even though he has, has this ongoing conflict between his desire with his mind to serve God's law while serving the law of sin with his flesh. So he's got this battle between flesh and his mind, wanting to obey God's law, delighting in God's law, but also not keeping God's law. And so I, I suspect that maybe one or two of us could relate to that. Um, perhaps some of us can relate to that. How does this declaration that there is no condemnation for those in Christ follow what he just said? Because he's, he just ends up saying, um, with my mind I serve the law of God, and with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. How does that follow? 
Well, it actually takes us back to verse 6 of chapter 7, where he says um, he could thank God because what he said in verse 6 of chapter 7, now we are released from the law, having died to it in Christ, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of, of the written code. So in chapter 8, Paul will expand on how we live in the new way of the Spirit. That's the hope. Paul refers to the Holy Spirit 15 times in the first 17 verses of Romans chapter 8. So you get the idea that just maybe the Holy Spirit is important to living the Christian life. There is now no condemnation. Now there is no condemnation, in spite of the fact that even those who are in Christ fail to keep God's law perfectly. God isn't going to withdraw his grace saying, okay, that's it. No more grace for you. I'm done. What was I thinking in the first place? He's, he's not going to say that. He's not going to put you back under condemnation. But now, because of what Christ has accomplished for us, if you are in him, there is no condemnation. Period. Ever. That's really good, hopeful news. No condemnation. Ever. Of course, you will only value that if you think that you deserve condemnation for not being perfect. And we don't think that way. We kind of think, well, nobody's perfect, so sin's no big deal, and it's not a big, big problem. I'm no worse than the other guy. In fact, I'm better than a lot of people I know. So we don't think in those terms. But as one um, theologian from a few centuries ago said, you have not yet considered what a heavyweight sin is. You will never be amazed by God's grace if you have light views of sin. If you think your cancer is no worse than a cold, then you will be not amazed if you get healed from it. What is the reason that condemnation no longer exists for those who are in Christ? That brings us to verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Because in Christ we have been released from the law as the way we live in covenant with him. Now we are set free from the old way of, of the law, which just resulted in more sin and condemnation. It just made matters worse. And, we, and the law could not deliver us from death. It couldn't give us spiritual life. We are set free in Christ Jesus by the law of the spirit of life. So the spirit gives new life, the life that Christ accomplished for us. We were dead in sin bound for eternal death, separation from God, but now we are alive in Christ, freed from sin and death for eternal life. How has this freedom from the law of sin and death been accomplished for us? He tells us that in verse 3, saying that God has done what the law could not do. Once again, Paul points out why the law could not free us from sin and death. The law was weakened by the flesh. The law has no capacity to give spiritual life to our flesh, our Again, our spiritually dead, anti-God nature. And the law could not make us right with God. It could not uncondemn us. So what did God do that the law could not? He condemned sin in the flesh. Because God is just, he couldn't just free us from sin's penalty and power by mere act of his will. He couldn't just say, okay, I'm letting you off the hook. I'm just going to forget it, put it all behind me. We're done. He couldn't do that and still be just. Many people, if they have any notion at all that we're liable to God's judgment and that we have a sinful bent, think that God could and did do just that. 
but to be just for God to be righteous, sin's penalty really had to be paid and its power really did need to be defeated. So how did God condemn sin without destroying us? How did he destroy sin without destroying us? God condemned sin in the flesh by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, or for sin offering, what that means. What does Paul mean by God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful flesh? He means he was as fully identified with us as he could be as a human in weakness, susceptibility to temptation, and suffering and death, yet without being sinful or committing sin himself. That's why Paul says God sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh, not just in the sinful flesh. He was, Jesus was truly human, and he was like us in almost every way, except he never sinned. God condemned sin in Christ's flesh, is what he's saying. In Christ's death on the cross, God condemned sin. Destroyed its enslaving power and paid its penalty for us. He judged it, freeing us from sin's penalty and sin's power. What was his purpose in doing this? Verse 4. God condemned sin in the flesh in order that as the righteous, the, the, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So all of Paul's saying, this is what the law can't do. You can't keep the law because of your sinful bent away from it. The law can't give you spiritual life. It's not the problem with the law. The, the problem is in you. But the law can't do it. So for all of that, God's still not scrapping the law. He's not doing away with it. God set us free from the law to fulfill the law in us. The wording indicates the law is being fulfilled in us, not that we are fulfilling the law from our own resources. But by the Spirit's enabling. The law is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit, but not according to the flesh. Now, in this life, we don't obey the law perfectly. We think we're all aware of that. Um, but by the Spirit, we do have a real obedience, even though it's interfered with and inf infected by our remaining sin. So in this life, we have a new direction, not perfection. We have a new direction, not perfection. The new direction is what the law demands as we are perfected by the Spirit's work. The only way you can be a Christian and to live as one is by the Spirit of God. It cannot happen apart from God's Holy Spirit. There are, so, the, In other words, there are two types of people in the world. There are those who walk by the Spirit, who are empowered and perfected by the Spirit, and those whose lives are controlled by the flesh. So what's the heart of the difference of the, in this? Where do we see this? How does this show up? This is what he talks about in the next several verses. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So literally, he's, what, what this says is those who are according to the flesh, those who are according to the Spirit. He's talking about our nature being defined by flesh or spirit. Again, these are two types of people. Your life is either animated by the flesh or animated by the Spirit. Your life is either driven by the flesh or by the Spirit. And the heart of where this shows up is in what you set your mind on, what you think about, what occupies your thoughts, your will, and your attitudes. 
In other words, you are what you think on, and what you think on is what you are. Which brings me to a scary question, and I kind of asked it at the beginning. What's on your mind these days? What are you thinking about? Puritan writer John Owen said, Ordinarily, voluntary or the free thoughts are the best measure and indication of the frame of our minds. In other words, where do your thoughts go when they aren't focused on something else? When their attention isn't being drawn to something? Where, where your thoughts freely go when they're not already preoccupied with something else is an indication of what's in your heart. They, they reflect what naturally fills your heart. Do your attitudes and, and motivations express the fruit of the Spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Or not so good things? When you're taking a math class and you hate math, you're forced to focus on math. And when you're done with the class, you forget about it. If you love math, you're thinking about it all the time. I won't take a survey to see how many of you are constantly thinking about math. But what, what you love, you just think about. What you hate, you can't wait to get it out of your mind. What you don't care about, it just you're, you just don't think about it. You're indifferent. Setting your minds on the things of the Spirit doesn't mean you're always only thinking about God and, and His Word. But you're frequently thinking about God and His Word. You're, um, you're, you're interpreting life and responding to people and situations according to God's Word. You will increasingly love what He loves, hate what God hates, and be passionate about the things that He's passionate about. If your mind is set on the on the things of the Spirit. You will make and, and take time to think about God and, and His Word. You, you will miss it when you miss times with God. And when your mind goes off the rails, you'll long to get back to them being on the rails in the Godward direction. Things like these are what the Spirit will be producing in you. You will delight in God and His Word. What difference does having one's mind set on the things of the flesh versus things of the spirit make? What what difference? What's does it matter? Yes, verse six. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Setting your mind on the flesh is death. It makes a massive difference. The difference between being spiritually dead and spiritually alive which beyond physical death means eternal death, alienation from God, or eternal life. That's why I said at the beginning, what you think about is in indicative of, do you have eternal life, or are you on the course of eternal death? Having spiritual life now and eternally is a life of peace. Set up the mind on the spirit. It is life. Do you have life thoughts? Life that produces peace? A life of joyful, loving relationship with God. That's what having peace with God is. Fullness of his blessing. Shalom. Your mind will increasingly be set on whatever is pure, beautiful, good, true, joyful, worthy of praise. 
things of life and peace. Again, uh, an ancient author says, this is the great difference that is between people in this world. If the thoughts that naturally arise and spring up in us are for the most part vain, foolish, sensual, earthly, selfish, such is the treasure that is in our hearts, and such we are. But where the thoughts that thus naturally proceed from the treasure that is in the heart are spiritual and holy, it is an argument that we are spiritually minded. In other words, that our mind is set on the spirit. Well, the opposite of that is in verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Literally, hostility. It's just the mind set on the flesh is hostility toward God. It just hates God. The reason the mind set on the flesh inevitably means spiritual death, which leads to eternal death, is that it is not at peace with God, but is hostile to him. Hostility toward God is death because spiritual life is a loving relationship with God. That's what, that's what life is. It's not just existing. If you reject God, you choose death. But what does Paul specifically say being hostile to God means? It means the mindset of the flesh does not submit to God's law, to God's law. What he gives us in his word is his law, his, his rules for life, his, his will. It means the mindset on the flesh does not submit to God's law. It doesn't delight in God's law. The mindset on the flesh may believe in God. It often does. But it will not submit to God's will, to his ways, to his word. It won't obey God. In fact, Paul says it cannot. You say, well, if it can't obey God, how can God hold those without the spirit responsible for not obeying? This isn't like a physical disability. Paul means the mindset on the flesh is so resistant to God's law that it does not, that the does not functions as a cannot. The does not becomes a cannot. Paul calls this in chapter 6, slavery to sin, being a slave to sin. You're, you're not forced to be a slave to sin. It's your nature and your mindset. So, for example, many parts of the highway, the speed limit is 55. You, so suppose you so hate the 55-mile-an-hour speed limit that you can't drive 55. And you even listen to songs that reemphasize that by Sammy Hagar. In reality, you can, and when an officer of the law penalizes you for it, you might slow down the next time you see one. But you are so committed to what you see as your need for speed that you cannot quit speeding. You are a slave to your need for speed, so you can't drive 55. You love going 80 so much. And therefore, verse 8, those who drive over 55, or those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. Because the mindset on the flesh does not and cannot obey God's law. Those who are in the flesh who don't have the indwelling spirit of God, cannot please God. And that begs the question, do you care? Do you think about pleasing God? Is that what your desire is? Well, this sounds pretty hopeless for those who are in the flesh. Well, right. Do you see why Paul says in, in verse 2 that the reason we won't be condemned is the law of the spirit of life 
has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's the law of the spirit of life. We needed a spirit life injection in order to have a new direction. Being indwelt by the Spirit of God is our only hope for overcoming the flesh and pleasing God. But as Paul has made clear, and as we know by experience, those of us who are in Christ still sin and we still die. So how can we be sure that the flesh won't end up overcoming us anyway and we fall back under condemnation? How can we be sure that the flesh isn't like drug-resistant bacteria and that we're not going to wind up in eternal death? Verse 9 through 11 talks about that. Paul says, if the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. Your life is either ruled by the Spirit or by the flesh. Paul is at pains to make this clear. Either you are in the flesh or in the Spirit. The only way you can belong to Christ, as he says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, does not belong to him. The only way to belong to Christ is to have the Spirit indwelling him. And, and it's interesting that uh, he refers to the same person of the Trinity. God is one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Paul interchangeably calls the Spirit of God the Spirit, the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of Christ without missing a beat. They're so united as one, even though they're not the same, uh, that they're, they're united in their work. What Paul is not talking about here is the fact that those who are in Christ, who are indwelt by the Spirit, still battle the old remnants of the flesh in this life. So that's that's a, another teaching. That's why in Galatians chapter 5, he tells us to walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the absolute categories of uh, existence. Either you are indwelt by the Spirit of God or you are in the flesh. You're either alive in Christ or you're dead in Adam. Verse 10 says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you through the indwelling Holy Spirit, although your physical body is dying and will die because of sin, yet the spirit is life. The spirit is life because of the righteousness that Christ has accomplished for us. The Spirit is spiritual and resurrection life for us and in us because of Christ's saving righteousness. And that means what he says in verse 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Paul says this twice. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, saying that he will also give life to our mortal bodies, through his spirit who dwells in us. The spirit who indwells us unites us to the resurrected Christ. When the time comes for resurrection then, the spirit will download the resurrection power of Christ into our mortal bodies, wherever they're fragmented, wherever they're buried, wherever they're scattered, however however they've decayed, and give us new resurrection bodies. And that's without fail. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's guaranteed. He will keep us. And he will see to it that we're resurrected. then our liberation from the law of sin and death will be fully realized. At last, the law of sin and death will not govern us at all. There was an article in the Washington Post titled, Tech Titan's Latest Project, Defy Death. 
co-founder of PayPal, Peter Thiel, says, death is the great enemy of humankind. The great unfinished task of the modern world is to turn death from a fact of life into a problem to be solved, a problem towards whose solution, he says, I hope to contribute in whatever way I can. He and other tech titans who founded Google, Facebook, eBay, Napster, and Netscape are using their billions to advance scientific research to extend life, at least get us to 150, but if possible, to do away with death. Thiel, the founder of um, uh, PayPal, cites Arthur C. Clarke's novel, The City and the Stars. This was published in 1956. It was a big influence on his thinking. Set one billion years into the future, so a few years off. And it imagines a life in technologically advanced city full of people who live forever by being stored in a computer and downloaded over and over again into new bodies. So my son Alex is a software engineer, and I think I'll task him with seeing if we can pull that off. <laughs> Harvest Community Church could be the first church in the block with downloadable life. The founder of Oracle, Larry Ellison, has proclaimed his wish to live forever and donated more than $430 million to anti-aging research. Death has never made sense to me, he says. How can a person be there and then just vanish, just not be there? He says, death makes me very angry. I agree. I agree with him on that point. Premature death makes me angrier still. Well, we know from Romans 8 that there is a cure for death, but death won't be cured by man's scientific and technological efforts. Because these can't cure sin, the cause of death. I, I looked in vain in the article to find where they were treating sin, and it, I missed it because it wasn't there. Death can only be cured through being counted righteous by faith in Christ and having the Spirit of Christ dwelling in you. Stephen Hawking, the physicist and cosmologist, that's a guy who theorizes about the origins of the universe, who authored A Brief History of Time, who is an atheist, says he isn't afraid to die. In light of his total paralysis due to ALS disease, he said, where there's life, there's hope. Now, that may be a helpful attitude to face suffering with, but it doesn't address the reason for death or the results of death, which is eternal separation from God, where there is no hope. Only God's Spirit can apply what God did for us in sending his Son for us, condemning sin and the flesh in him. Only the Spirit of God can fulfill the righteous requirement of God's law for us and in us. Only God's Spirit can set our minds on the things of the Spirit, on the things of God, which is life and peace. Only God's Spirit, who is life, can give life to our mortal bodies after they have died. God has guaranteed that we can't and won't fall back under condemnation because he has given us his Spirit because of what Christ has done. As we close our time in prayer, we'll have some more worship together afterwards in song, um, but it's also time for 
receiving the offering. So uh, if there's anybody who's there to receive the offering, be prepared to do that, and I'll pray for us and for the offering. Father, we are humbled and convicted of our inability to please you. Your servant Paul has made it really, really clear that even though your word in the commands it gives us is good and holy and right and true, um, because of our brokenness, our sin nature, our flesh, we just don't keep it and we fail at it and we get more addicted to our sin. Whether it's cleaned up version of sin and pride or more flagrant versions of it, it's all the same. It leaves us under condemnation, which is why we had the glorious news this morning that for those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. And it's far from being a, a proud, a prideful thing, Father, for us. We can't receive Christ unless we're humbled and, and confess our utter inability to obey you, our utter inability to remove the cause of death, to, to do away with our own sin, to, to forgive our own sins, to overcome our own sinfulness. We need Christ. And what he did for us was outside of us and brought inside of us by the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that it was a team effort, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that shows how powerful this work was and how great the work was needed to redeem us and rescue us, Father, from our death march toward eternal death. I pray, Father, that there's no one here this morning who's heard this message that will will leave without receiving Christ if they haven't already done that. Put their trust in Jesus alone, uh, who took our sin and death on himself on the cross and overcame it in his resurrection and grants us his resurrection life and power through your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Father. Father, we ask your forgiveness for even though if we have the Spirit of God, we have a new thought propensity, we have a new thought orientation, for the ways that we don't feed that, the ways that we don't uh, nurture that, and, and letting our thoughts um, not be fixed on you and on your word the way it could and should be. So forgive us of that and cleanse us. And Father, renew our, our desire, Father, to be thinking thoughts that the Spirit approves of and, and uh, animates and brings to life through your word. We thank you, Father, for the privilege we have of serving you through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the gifts of the Spirit. Pray, Father, for the overflow of, of your grace to abound through Harvest Community Church to one another, to the community, and to the nations. And Father, toward that end, we, we uh, contribute our finances to that work, to building up the body here and, and keeping the mission going forward. So thank you, Father, for, for the gifts that you provided through your people who give it freely to you and who we ask grants us the wisdom and grace to use it for your glory. Father, we do give you the glory and praise and thank you again for the gift of the Holy Spirit and the guarantee of, of life everlasting. In Christ we pray.